Our scripture reading this afternoon is taken from Romans chapter 3. Actually, we begin reading in Romans chapter 2, about halfway through the chapter. So in the Pew Bibles, page 1731, Romans chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 17. I understand Pastor Prasad has preached from uh, this general area in Romans uh, fairly recently. Um, I did communicate to him that's where we are uh, presently at Hope, and this is all I can do in terms of our being here together. I trust it will be uh, complimentary in terms of the things you may have seen already. Um, in Romans, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is um, speaking about the reality of judgment and our guiltiness. And um, by the time we are where we are uh, into chapter 3, where we're going to be this afternoon, the verses 5 through 8, He's almost finished um, the dealing with the reality of judgment and our guilt and uh, bringing it to a conclusion, one that we have to face squarely together, have an understanding of, so that we may know and appreciate and understand and embrace the gospel, the power of God and a salvation for all who believe. So Romans... Two, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. This is the word of God. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh." But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God? For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. 
Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And now the verses 5 through 8, our focus. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. Their condemnation is just. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm quite sure that most of us know what it is to make excuses for ourselves and to raise objections of protest when the threat of being punished is before us. Boys and girls, maybe you can relate to times when you know you are in trouble, when you know you have done wrong, when you know there is no way of denying the truth, no way of pretending that you're actually in the right, when you know you don't have a leg to stand on, when nevertheless you continue to argue. You continue to make your objections. But, 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 but it's not fair. But I wasn't ready. But you should go easy on me. We have our objections and we have our excuses. And sometimes we will, even though we know better, continue to raise our but, but, but objections. Now, I think that helps us to think about a reality we can all identify with. It helps us to appreciate what the Apostle Paul is doing in these verses 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 3. He's actually giving voice to sinful objections. Now, we have to appreciate that's what he's doing. It's maybe a little bit of a challenge, maybe a little bit complicated, but he makes plain to us already in what he says in verse 5, in the, in the words that we see in brackets, I speak as a man. So we know that in the things that he's saying here, he is laying out for us the way people talk, the way a human, a sinful naturally inclined toward all evil, sinful human being will raise up his objections. But, 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 but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? 
But is it fair? You see, that's what's being said here. But God can't really punish us, will he? God won't punish us. And as we make our way through these four verses in Romans 3 before us here this afternoon, we see that uh, the silliness of that sort of objection is one that is repeated. And that shows us something as well, doesn't it? About the foolishness, the silliness, or we might say the absurdity of unbelief. But I trust we also can recognize that these kinds of objections are our objections, naturally speaking. I speak as a man. This is, this is how I argued. It's how you argued, too, before you knew the Lord. This is, this is what kept you at a distance from God, this sort of sense. Well, I, I have my reasons, I have my excuses, I have my objections, and uh, we may feel pretty good patting ourselves on the back, but God's not fair, and I don't believe in that, I don't want to listen to anything like that. It keeps us from God. It keeps us at a distance from Him. That's a sad reality. That's something we don't want to happen. You see, the reason the Apostle Paul is taking the time at the end of this long argument to make sure that our objections are answered and our excuses are taken away is precisely because he wants us to know the gospel. He wants us to know Jesus. He wants his hearers to know the hope and blessing of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life in fellowship with God in Christ. And as long as we make these objections, we're not going to know that blessing. And so what we have before us here this afternoon are human arguments that keep us from God. Human arguments that keep us from God. I speak as a man he says. But he speaks in this way in order for us to realize the seriousness and the danger, in order for us to give it up and give it over. Now, I recognize many of us are Christians, and we would say, I think we know better than to make these kinds of objections any longer. Maybe so. It still may be natural to us, but at any rate, it's helpful for us to consider these human arguments that keep us from God with a view to loved ones, with a view to neighbors and colleagues who are still making them. We're still making these excuses. We're still keeping their distance from God. And what we see about these arguments as we'll make our way into them now are these three things. These arguments are arrogant, these arguments are absurd, and these arguments have an answer. They're answered here by the Apostle Paul pretty, um, pretty matter-of-factly. He doesn't go into a great, uh, elaborate, detailed argument against them. He speaks of the reality of judgment and leaves it there. Their condemnation is just. And so we can learn from the Apostle Paul, I trust. I, I trust that we are also willing to be humbled in the acknowledgement we can still make these kinds of arguments. We think 
uh, we have excuses to make. We like to defend ourselves. And when we defend ourselves, we stay away from God. We don't want to do that. So, human arguments that keep us from God. We recognize this is an arrogant argument. What the Apostle Paul is talking about, but, the big but here in uh, verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? But it isn't fair. God shouldn't punish us. There shouldn't be justice. Is God unjust when he inflicts wrath? That's sort of the argument that's being uh, set forth here. And I hope we can recognize it's an argument of self-preservation, an argument of self-protection, self-confidence. And that's prideful. That's arrogant. Um, And that's, as we'll see, as we get to our second point, it's silly. It's absurd. But it is a reality that we need to acknowledge happens. It always happens. This is how we think as people. This is what we think protects us, but effectively hurts us so much as it keeps us from God. So let me just uh, give a bit of the context. Um, I preached this sermon at Hope this morning in the context of a whole long series of sermons that have gone before this in uh, the book of Romans, you know that the Apostle Paul is passionate about the gospel. He says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Paul glories in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. In the gospel, in the good news about salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ, um, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. That's what God does. Through the gospel preached, he brings people into a saving relationship with himself. Paul is thrilled about that. Paul is passionate about that. But the reason it's so urgent, that's Romans 1, 16, and 17. The reason it's so urgent is what he goes on to say in Romans 1, verse 18, when he says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There is the reality of judgment. And for the Apostle Paul, that's not simply something that will come someday when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. It is being revealed today. It is being revealed all around us. And we see that over against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Everybody knows better is what he's saying, but everybody is inclined by nature to deny what we should know about God and to push that truth away and say, I don't want to hear about it. Now, The Apostle goes into some detail in Romans chapter 1. It's not my place here to uh, preach that sermon. Um, I think if we know enough from our Bibles and from our memories, we'll know, yes, uh, some very strong things are said about the kinds of corruption and wickedness that uh, we see around about us in our culture. And um, 
Paul's first hearers, certainly of the Jewish background, whether they had come to Christ already or were being challenged to come to Christ, they would have heard Paul's words from Romans 1.18 to the end of chapter 1 as, yes, Paul, right on, preach it. Those Gentiles need to hear that. They are worthy of judgment. And you could almost imagine them clapping their hands uh, in agreement with what the Apostle Paul is saying. But Paul goes on in chapter 2, and he turns his sights upon them and the rest of the people, the religious folk, even like you and me, particularly in his time against the Jews. But he's making plain that in their self-righteousness, they're also worthy of judgment. And he made the point, that's where we began reading at verse 17, you you have the law, you you have the Bible, you, you know these things, you You profess to teach others, but do you keep the law? You are bringing shame to the name of God. The name of God is blasphemed, 2 verse 24, among the Gentiles because of you. So don't take comfort in the fact that you've got a Bible in your home and that you've learned the Bible and that you know the law. Where do you stand? With regard to that. And and then he he touches on their circumcision at verse 25 of chapter 2. And we could apply that today as New Testament believers to our baptism, the signs and seals of God's promise. He says, "Don't don't take refuge in a physical ceremony. Recognize that your circumcision or your baptism have been pointing you For the promises of God have been pointing you, we would say, to Jesus Christ. Yes, you have many advantages. You've been given the Bible. You have the oracles of God. You have the promises of God. You have them signed and sealed to you in the sacrament, the sacrament of baptism. But are you taking those blessings for granted? As though they themselves save you? Or are you taking hold of what your sign and seal of baptism has been pointing you toward? Are you taking hold of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's not a Jew who's one inward, uh, sorry, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly in circumcision. uh, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who's one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart. Our relationship to God in Jesus Christ is a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's a taking hold of all that is promised in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul is saying, take hold of those advantages. And it's bringing us to the point where he asks a question. It's one of those sort of objections that he is anticipating. And we see that at 3 verse 3 already. What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So there are a lot of people, are there not, who go to church, even have been baptized. Boys and girls, children of the covenant have been baptized, and some of them turn their backs on God. What if some of them don't believe? Is that saying God was never faithful? And Paul says, absolutely not. That's not the point at all. Certainly not, verse 4, 3 verse 4. That's one of Paul's emphatic uh, negations, we could say. Emphatically, no, absolutely not. God forbid. 
Let God be true and every man a liar. When people respond in unbelief, not in faith, that doesn't, that doesn't make God unfaithful. That in itself shows him to be faithful and true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now, there's great reason for comfort and joy in that. When we, in terms of our sinfulness and falseness, are being liars. We may say, as I think it was Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, false and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Lord, I'm a liar. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And indeed, that's what uh, the Apostle Paul is urging us toward. He quotes in the end of verse 4, David from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words. David is saying, I'm a sinner. This was after his wicked sins with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Psalm 51, verse 3, in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words. Lord, when you judge me for being a sinner, you are right. It's right what you say about me. And uh, God, you may overcome when you are judged. Imagine going head to head with God. Imagine uh, taking God to task and challenging him. The answer here, the way our translation puts the quote from Psalm 51, you, are, you, you overcome when you are judged. You go head to head with God, you're going to lose. And God is going to win. Because God is right. God is always right. Let God be true and every man a liar. But now it's interesting what the Apostle Paul does next is he shows us how we would still tend to react to this kind of thing as humans. Still wanting to protect ourselves, still wanting to stand in our arrogant pride. Okay, God be true, every man a liar. So, verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. So, we are unrighteous, we're liars. It demonstrates the righteousness of God. God is true. Okay, if that's true, what are we going to do with that? What shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? You see, the implication is, well, it wouldn't be fair then for God to punish us. Now, where did they get that from? Well, we get that from a human desire to protect ourselves at all costs. The, the first part of what is said, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. That's a true statement, right? Our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And we can, I think we can see that very quickly in, in many ways. Here's God in all of His glory and beauty and majesty and perfection. Here's us in all of our sin and unrighteousness. You compare what you see here with what you see here, and you say the, the, the unrighteousness that we see here demonstrates, it makes plain, the righteousness we see, on the other hand, in God. Now, also when God comes to judge us, He um, he's justified in His words. He will overcome when He is judged. 
He is right in what he judges. When, when he looks at us and he says, sinful, worthy of condemnation, he's justified. It's right. And again, our unrighteousness demonstrates his righteousness. Thankfully, we can go further in terms of the blessing of salvation. Um, we who acknowledge and confess our unrighteousness before him come to know the blessing of salvation only by God's grace, only by his wonderful work. And again, what we were and what we received by God's grace in Jesus Christ demonstrates to the glory of God he is righteous in all his ways. One more way to reflect upon this phrase in a way that makes sense, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, is the realization that everything that happens in the world and everything we do as people is imperfect and stained with sin, that's speaking um, most charitably, everything that happens in the world, God uses and uh, through these things is at work. God is not the author of sin, nor shall he be charged of sin. That's blasphemy. But God is at work even through the most wicked, sinful acts of men to bring about his glorious purposes. Now just think about the most wicked thing that has ever happened in the world. What would that be? The death of Jesus on the cross. That would be the most wicked thing that's ever happened in the world. And um, Peter says in Acts 2 verse 23, it was you with your lawless hands that you delivered him up to be crucified, right? But it was also, as Acts 2 verse 23 says, according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So our unrighteousness will demonstrate the righteousness of God. God will be glorified as he was in sending Jesus to the cross. All of those things are true, right? Now the challenge is, what does a proud, self-promoting, self-protecting person do with that truth? Well, God, if even my wicked things are in the end, showing your righteousness and magnifying your glory, then you should be happy with me in my sin. I'm helping you out. I'm doing you a favor. I'm speaking as a man, you understand. This, but this is the way of unbelief. This is the way of human pride. Can you imagine those who clamored for the death of the Lord Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And we count ourselves as the guilty, right? Can you imagine people saying, God, I should, I should get some credit for that. That's ridiculous, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That is ridiculous. It's insane. So the arrogant response of desiring to maintain our composure, maintain our pride, effectively keeping us from God because we think we're going to do okay on ourselves and the argument, God isn't right to punish us, is he? The Apostle Paul answers that and effectively, as we come into our second point, he shows it to be absurd. 
He shows it to be insane. Verse 6, certainly not. He repeats those words we saw in verse 4. Again, uh, some translations will say, God forbid. This is, uh, I can't say it's strong enough is, is what he's saying here. Certainly not. Don't even think about it. And, and all he says in response then is, how will God judge the world? And what he's saying is simply this. You all know, don't you? God will judge the world. And his judgment will be right. God will judge the world. That means it applies to everybody. And it applies to everything everybody has ever done. And that's a reality you know to be true. Paul has been talking about that since 1 verse 18, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven and continually throughout chapter 2. But he simply, he, he just uses a phrase and that's all he has to say to show the absurdity of thinking, God's not going to punish, right? I mean, we've been helping him out and so he should let us go. No. Sin is serious. Paul goes on, verse 7, and he effectively picks it up again. And I think he's showing us by sort of returning to the same sort of argument, we might say, as the Proverbs do, as a dog returns to his vomit. Paul has, has already made plain that the argument of verse 5 is silly. And now he's showing, oh, it's just another way of saying it. And this is the absurdity of unbelief. You know better but you keep saying it and keep saying it and keep saying it. It's like when we were little children and we knew we were in trouble and we just kept on raising our objections as if that would make it different. We just kept on saying the same thing. It's Einstein's definition of insanity, isn't it? And that's what the Apostle Paul is showing us here, this absurdity. For This is, this is the, the, another sort of objection, another excuse, another... But God, verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? So, God is glorified despite the fact that I'm a liar, despite the fact that um, I'm false and full of sin. God is glorified. Right? That God be true and every man a liar. And if that's the case, then again the argument is, well, why should there be judgment? Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And basically the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing as he did. Right? God's going to judge. Why am I still judged as a sinner? Because sin is still sin. It's absurd to think Sin means nothing. Sin is absurd. Unbelief is absurd. Our objections, our excuses that try to protect ourselves and keep us, therefore, at a distance from God, absurd. We should stop that. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching. And again, the Apostle Paul, he knows this from experience. Speak as a man. I know, I know this stuff. I know this response. 
absurd. He's making that very plain. Yes, whatever happens in this world ultimately redounds to the glory of God. But when we sinned, was our purpose, was our desire to give God glory? No. Why am I still judged as a sinner? Because sin is sin. It's an offense to God. And God is a perfect and righteous judge. We should take comfort in the fact that God will judge the earth. God will keep his word. God will effect perfect judgment. Now, until we know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a scary thing. And the Apostle Paul is going to get us where we can appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for us. But we're not helping ourselves. We're not helping ourselves when we repeatedly, again, the definition of insanity, make the same objections and the same arguments that we know do not hold water. Today you might hear it in the language that you, you can hear among people. Love is love. And you may hear it among so-called Christian churches that have a focus on the love of God which implies then what shall we say? God is not going to be just. God is not going to judge the earth. God is not concerned about his perfect justice. God is not concerned about uprightness and righteousness according to his commandments. No, God is love. My God is a God of love. And to repeat that and repeat it and repeat it doesn't make it so. Yes, he's a God of love in a way you can't even begin to imagine. But people will use that as an insane attempt to protect themselves without reference to who God really is and effectively keep themselves from God and without knowing him as he needs to be known. And then Paul goes on in verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? He's sort, of, he's sort of running with it now in terms of this is the way our human thinking goes. He's going to lay that out for us in order that he may attack it, or address it rather, and answer it. We're talking here in the third place then about Paul's answer, right? We've seen that already in terms of... Uh, Certainly not, verse 6, how will God judge the world? He's going to judge the world. That's part of Paul's straightforward answer. Um, he's implied as well, we will be judged. Sinners will be judged. Sin will be judged because sin is sin. And now he's going to go on and explain further why these last arguments are also just plain silly and absurd. Why not say... Let us do evil that good may come. As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. I wonder if you've ever thought that way. Let's do evil that good may come. 
and, and they're sort of still appealing to let God be true and every man a liar. I'm a liar. Uh, God shouldn't judge me. Uh, it's probably best for me to do evil. We've already said, right? Everything works together for the good, according to God's purposes. We might as well do evil. Well, that's just plain absurd. What's your point? What's your purpose? What's your goal? The apostle is saying here, people are accusing him of that. So I take from that that we have two groups of people that the Apostle Paul effectively has in view. Some, probably the likes of self-righteous Jews, are saying that the teaching that the Apostle Paul is giving, that he's bringing us to, um, it's going to make people lazy. It's going to make people uh, just want to sin, that grace may abound. And um, we might call that antinomianism, against the law, lawlessness. But the people who, who are making that accusation against the Apostle Paul are those who themselves think we are the law keepers. We want nothing of that because we're the good ones and we do what is right. And I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying at the end of verse 8 is their condemnation is just, is a plague on both your houses. Their condemnation is just. The ones who make these kinds of accusations, as if I'm teaching that you can just live as you please, do evil, uh, that good may come. The ones who say that's what I teach, your condemnation is just. And the ones who act, actually would practice something like that, your condemnation is just. You see, the Apostle Paul is going to get us to a place where we can realize it's not salvation by works and it's also not a life of wicked self-centeredness. Each one accuses the other of that's what Paul is teaching and both are wrong. Your condemnation is just. The Apostle Paul is going to preach the gospel. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, we should not have the idea, you know, God and I have a wonderful arrangement. I sin, He forgives. That would be an abuse, an absurd conclusion to draw from the right teaching of the Bible. Now, John Newton, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, among some others. He was once a slave trader. He said, at the age of 82, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Those are beautiful words. But it's different than what the apostles Paul is arguing against here. Let us do evil that good may come. It's different than this sort of thing I just mentioned. You know, we have a wonderful arrangement, me and God. I'm a sinner. He forgives me. That's not what, that's not what John Newton was talking about. I'm a great sinner. I have a great Savior. He wasn't suggesting that sin is the way to go. He wasn't suggesting that sin was something he could be comfortable with. 
He was acknowledging, I have a great Savior, and He is my Savior. And the concern here the Apostle Paul is dealing with is when we raise these objections to protect ourselves, we don't have a great Savior. We're not looking to Jesus. We're keeping ourselves from Him. We think we're standing on our own. And that's insane. That's absurd. We need to come to the place where instead we realize... My condemnation is just. Bottom line. Paul has almost finished his argument here. He's going to sum it all up in the verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3. But basically what we need to understand is everything of us, all of our efforts, all of our pride, all of our accomplishment, all of our excuses must be as nothing before God if we are to know and understand, embrace, appreciate, live in the joy of the gospel, the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. When we can humbly say, Lord, I have been arrogant, I've been crazy, I've been absurd, and my condemnation is just. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. He will. He does. We know that, right? And as we know that, may God help us to be able to think through these kinds of human ways of thinking, because we've been there. And to do that with the Apostle Paul, so we may help others who are still stuck there. We're still arrogant. We're still absurd. Sin is absurd. Unbelief is absurd. Our condemnation is just. So may God help us to be able to engage people in their objections. And sometimes, even as the Apostle Paul shows us here, just a simple, straightforward word of truth. God will judge the world, the whole world, and His justice will be right. And your condemnation is just. And you need to stop with your arguments. You need to come to God and live. Amen. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the wondrous grace you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We're thankful that we may learn to acknowledge and confess our condemnation is just. We're thankful that you expose our human way of thinking that would seek to protect and promote, self-promote ourselves, effectively keeping us from you. We thank you, O Lord, that you show us that doesn't work. You show us it's silly, it's crazy, it is absurd. We pray that you would help us to be at the place the Apostle Paul would have us be at the end of this teaching, acknowledging 
the rightness of our condemnation, but realizing our deep need for the Lord Jesus and the hope that is found in Him. Lord, grant that as we come to You, as we trust in You, we would be encouraged in the wonder of Your grace. There is forgiveness with You. There is a hope of eternal life with You. It is all of You. It is all of Your grace. We ask, O Lord, that You will help us also then as we think through these things and enjoy the blessing of salvation for ourselves to be able to challenge and encourage others. Lord, we're all by nature arrogant and silly. And we thank you that there is an answer in Jesus the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.